the heat dome keeps expanding. Daily record highs have been set from parts of the west into Texas, and there seems to be no relief with Phoenix, Arizona registering the warmest low temp ever recorded at 97 degrees at 4 a.m. NBC News reporter Blaine Alexander said experts are giving tips on how to stay safe. That's why experts are saying take this seriously. Make sure that you take cool showers. Don't use a fan as your source of cooling because that can give you a false sense of security. IRS whistleblowers are accusing the Justice Department of improperly interfering in the criminal investigation into Hunter Biden's taxes. IRS investigator Gary Shapley said prosecutors slow walk the case and refused to bring felony charges against the president's son, who recently reached a deal to plead guilty to two charges of misdemeanor tax evasion. A federal judge in New York City is rejecting former President Trump's request for a retrial in a sex assault case brought by E. Jean Carroll. Sarah Lee Kessler reports. In May, Trump was found liable for sexually assaulting the Hudson Valley writer in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room back in the 1990s. He was also found guilty of defaming her in a 2022 social media post in which he called her claims a hoax and a lie. The jury ordered the ex-president to pay $5 million in damages. He demanded a new trial, calling the verdict a seriously erroneous result and a miscarriage of justice. Judge Lewis Kaplan disagrees with Trump's assessment, and now he said no to a new trial. I'm Sarah Lee Kessler. New details are coming out about a woman who went missing after reporting seeing a toddler walking alongside a highway in Alabama and then reappeared two days later. You're listening to the latest from NBC News Radio. This summer is bright at Whole Foods Market. Get organic yellow and white peaches for $2.99 per pound with Prime through July 25th. Add a sweet twist to your salad with juicy peaches tossed in. While supplies last, shop in-store or online. Terms apply. Hey loves, welcome. It's Clarity with Sue Radio, where we win at life. We reclaim, rediscover, redesign an authentic and genuine self. And yes, this is intimacy on a whole new level. Join us at claritywithsue.com. Sign up for the newsletter and get a copy of the radio show. Again, that is claritywithsue.com. Time now for a quick look at our KKNW weather outlook. Tonight, mostly clear. We'll see a low around 61. Sunshine for Thursday with a high near 83 and a low around 60. Mostly sunny Friday, high near 80, low around 59. Sunny again Saturday and Sunday with highs near 80, lows around 58. The views expressed on this program are those of the host, guest, and callers and are not necessarily those of KKNW, its management, or other advertisers. This program is sponsored by Casey Communications Incorporated. The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. Welcome to Voices of Experience on KIXI AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM, and of course my podcast, 
My name is Paul Casey, and again, it's great to have you here today. Um, Just wanted to let you know that in terms of the show, when I play the Timeless Classic at the end of the show, you'll hear the entire song on Kixie. However, because of um, some regulations within the industry, you will not hear it, the entire song on KKNW and on my podcast. So just want to let you know that up front. And uh, also today, we're going to be giving out some Tacoma Rainiers baseball tickets for a game on July 25th. It's an afternoon game, and uh, we'll talk about that as the show goes on. Yeah, and with the weather we have now, come on, an afternoon game on July 25th. Uh, that would be just great. I was just talking to two people here today about uh, the Rainiers. What a fun time that is. Family friendly, lots to do for the kids. And um, it's it's like stepping back in time to a better time, I think, uh, in sports because it's inexpensive. It's still great action. People are friendly. It's fun. All the above. You should be a spokesman for the Rainiers. I should get a little bit of money. Yeah, on the side. (laughs) Keep checking the mailbox. There's nothing there. (laughs) But it's good. Yes, and I agree with you totally on on all those scores. Uh, You do. It's a time where, as you said, it's affordable, and it's just great baseball. You see the stars of tomorrow really playing there. So, Eric, you have a segment today on Octopus. Yeah, Dr. David Scheel has written a book. He's also a researcher, and I was able to sit down with him and interview him about octopuses. I thought it was octopi, but he's, he corrected me. It's octopuses. And uh, it was really interesting just learning about their habits. There's so much that's still not even known, like a lot of things that are in the sea. Uh, but what they do know will amaze you. Don't we have, like, the most of octopuses in Puget Sound in the entire world. I've heard that. I didn't touch that, but I wouldn't doubt it because that's why he re- he's a researcher up in Alaska, but he's very familiar with the giant Pacific octopus, uh, which is prevalent in our waters. He did say we had two species, and we'll talk about that in okay. the, in the uh, uh, in our waters here. You know, uh, Puget Sound's a very deep body of water in certain areas. I, I believe it can go up to about a thousand feet in certain areas. That's pretty dang deep for an inlet, you okay. know, as, as is in the Puget Sound. So very cold, deep, dark water. They, they love it. So and they grow big, nutrient right. rich. Very interesting. We'll look forward to that today. And uh, also, I have a really interesting interview with a gentleman by the name of Brad Forbes, and he's the public policy director for the Alzheimer's Association of Washington State. And the reason I chose to do an interview about this important subject is because uh, there's been a pretty big breakthrough in treatment, and Mm. it's called Lakembi. And we'll get to the interview. We'll talk about it, but it's going to be the first interview just coming up in just a few moments. So hang on. If you want to find out more about this, I really urge you to hear what he has to say because what I find exciting about this medication is that it prevents the onset, and that's the first time it's helping in that arena, mm. let's put it that way, okay. slows it down. All right. That has not occurred in the last 50 years of research. So this is big. That's a big breakthrough. Amazing. Big breakthrough. Yeah. So I think uh, people who are interested in the subject should stay with us on that note. I'm also talking with um, today, let's talk about some travel information in Ireland, a Jack Cavanaugh. So if you're thinking about going to Ireland in the near future, I really do have the person today to help you really navigate your trip there. He uh, has written a book about Ireland for National Geographic. He grew up there. He knows all about it. So, again, you'll hear him Mm. talk about that 
coming up today. It's filled with incredible backstories and photos, and um, I think you will really enjoy uh, Jack's uh, overview of Ireland, put it that way, because, again, he knows every nook and cranny and every historical highlight of that uh, great island. Now, have you been there yourself? I have. Okay. I have been there in 1989, and uh, one of my experiences I did ask a result of that was a question like, if you have one week in Ireland, which I had, what would you do? Well, I found out we did the right thing. Oh, good. And the second thing, if you had 30 days in Ireland, what would you do? And that's kind of what we talked about. So that's, uh, again, coming up probably about uh, oh, about the 20-minute part of the program today. And uh, for the Timeless Classic, this was released in January 1969. It's about the evangelical preacher. Okay? Got it. Okay. Think about that. 1969. Got it. All right. It was a breakthrough song for this singer. He is already very popular in the mid to late 60s, but this one took him to another level. And again, now, I'm not going to cheat because you wrote it on my piece of paper. I did, didn't I? Yeah, and I, I w- I'd love to cheat and feel smart, but I wouldn't have got it. i got to be honest. It's a little tough for me. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I, I, that's true. I, I don't think many people out there have gotten I've it heard so the song. far, but we'll see. Good song. It is. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. So that's coming up, uh, obviously, towards the end of the show today. And uh, Voices of History for today. Another event occurred in 1969. That happened 54 years ago tomorrow. So there you go. That's what we have there. What else do we have here? I'm going to have a couple comments on self-employment today, but that's about it, about it for now. So let's just get on with the show. Just to let you know, if you have anything you would like to give us information about or any suggestions about Voices of Experience, the radio show, you can call 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. All right, Jack Cavanaugh. And always Ireland coming up in just a moment. You can go right in. Brad. Thank you for coming on this show today. I haven't really covered Alzheimer's disease as much as I've wanted to, and it's certainly something that one of the things that prompted me to do this interview with you, and that is a new treatment called Lakembi, and it shows some real promising results. So why don't you tell us, Brad, what that's about? Yeah, we are very excited about Lakembi. Lakembi is the first ever drug that has been shown to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease to receive traditional approval from the Food and Drug Administration. There have been drugs in the past that have addressed the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, but Lakembi um, really takes that next step and actually slows the progress of the disease. This is pretty significant because, as you mentioned, before it was treating the symptoms and now this is delaying some of the onslaught of it. And from what I've seen in the past, like I talked to one doctor about this once, and he said, we really don't have to cure Alzheimer's disease per se. We need to delay it for 30 or 40 years. And this seems like a step in that direction. Yes, that's correct. Well, Kembi is um, the first great step in 
actually delaying the progress of Alzheimer's disease, which is huge. As the baby boom generation continues to age, it's going to become more important than ever that we work to slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease before it becomes a, a true tidal wave. Can I ask you a question about Alzheimer's disease and dementia? What is the difference? I have people ask me that all the time. I take a crack at it, but can you describe what that difference is? Dementia is the broad umbrella term that includes multiple diseases that involve uh, cognitive impairment. Um, and Alzheimer's disease is one of the specific diseases under that umbrella of dementia. It's the most common, um, but there are also several others. The Alzheimer's Association works towards a world without Alzheimer's or all other dementias. Let's talk about some of your services. There are many. Let's start out with the 24-hour helpline. The Alzheimer's Association has a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year helpline, uh, which is 1-800-272-3900. And this helpline, which is, again, available day and night whenever you need it, is staffed by clinical social workers who can work with you um, on any question you have around dementia. For example, if you are seeing a loved one become more easily confused or engage in behaviors that maybe they didn't used to that seem a little bizarre to you, I would recommend calling the helpline and talking to the folks there, and they can help you figure out if these might be signs of dementia. Or, for example, let's say that you're a caretaker providing care for a loved one, and you think they might need a higher level of care, maybe um, a long-term care facility, uh, the helpline can help give you some guidance on the best ways to go about finding a, a facility for your loved one. And you know what's so great about that? The caregiver, and that's really the focus of the Alzheimer's Association. You have to have a caregiver because one of the things that I've read is that the caregiver is the one many times who has breakdowns and serious health issues caring for an individual with Alzheimer's disease, and this 24-hour helpline can help throughout that process, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. They are, are standing by to talk you through any issues you may be having with caregiving, as well as providing um, resources to caregivers. When people think about Alzheimer's disease or other dementia, you're right. Usually the first thing that comes to mind is the person living with the disease, and too often people sort of forget about the caregiver and the fact that we need to care for the caregiver because when you are providing care for a loved one, that is basically its own full-time job in many cases. And uh, there's real equity issues there as well because so often the person providing that part or full-time care is an unpaid family member, most often an adult daughter or daughter-in-law who ends up needing to take leave from their job or in some cases full-on quit their job to spend a full-time amount of effort on caring for a loved one. I can't emphasize the importance of those support groups that the Alzheimer's Association also sponsors as well throughout the state of Washington and I assume in northern Idaho. We have support groups in all corners of Washington state as well as northern Idaho and in all other regions of the nation as well. And these support groups are geared towards specific populations. So there are support groups for people in the various stages of Alzheimer's disease, um, as well as support groups for um, family members and care partners. Uh, and if you um, are interested in learning where in your local community you can access a support group, um, I would recommend calling that helpline that we just talked about a few minutes ago because that's another service they provide. It's helping connect you to resources in your local community. And that is 
3900-1800-272-3900. If your loved one you think may be having some issues, make the call because you can really get the support that you need. And I know that firsthand. 1-800-272-3900. Brad, what other things do you want to talk about before we go? Is there anything else you can uh, help the audience get a greater understanding of the Alzheimer's Association? I, I want to say that Alzheimer's disease affects the brain, and it's important to remember that your brain is just like any other organ in your body, which is to say that if there is an illness or a disease that is best caught early, make sure that you are going to regular doctor's visits. If you or a loved one are experiencing any level of cognitive impairment, um, we really encourage you to go see a provider and tell them what's going on, talk about dementia, to uh, really try to get ahead of it and produce the best outcomes for you and your family. Well, our thanks to uh, Brad Forbes, Director of Public Policy for the Washington State Alzheimer's Association, which also serves Northern Idaho, for spending time with us today. I don't want to give those numbers out again. There's offices in Tukwila and Lidwood, and that number is 1-800-272-3900, 1-800-272-3900. And I think I mentioned this at some point in one of the shows, but This organization goes very close to my heart because I was the first executive director of the Alzheimer's Association back in the 1980s, and uh, it was a much smaller operation then. We were kind of in a broom closet. But when I found out my mother had Alzheimer's disease, Mm. and she was diagnosed in 1981, and when I heard the doctor uh, say that she has Alzheimer's, I had never heard of it. Right. It was like, what is that? And I remember him saying something along the lines that she's going to have to live a simpler life. And that's what we left with. And um, I remember my dad came home, and we were talking about, we just saw the doctor, because he was on, on the road then. He came home, and he said, what is it? And I just it, I had to take it out of my you know, wallet and say, it's Alzheimer's, something like that. Wow. He, uh, he said, well, is it serious? And I said, I don't know, hmm. but it doesn't sound good. No. That's what I, that's all I knew about that time. So that's how much we, and, and then what really surprised me at the time is I found out it was the fourth leading cause of death among adults behind cancer, heart, and stroke. And I'd never heard of it. No. So anyhow. That's, that's right around the some, same time I guess I'd heard it for the first time. And remember, at first, a lot of people were just calling it old timer's disease. That's very true. Because they thought that's how you pronounced it or that's what, how, what, what it was called. Right. And the first individual who got it that just stunned everybody was Rock Hudson. No, wait, he got AIDS. Excuse me. Yeah. It was, um, who was it the first? Well, Ronald Reagan certainly did. That was in the 90s. But there were a few other actresses in there that did did get it. But very few. And as I said, it was a very confusing time for a lot of people, including us. But then uh, it's nice to see that maybe there's some breakthrough on the horizon Absolutely. in research. So, Absolutely. Uh, anyhow. So we'll be back with uh, Voices of a History in just a second. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? 
If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and we have the two Eric's in the studio right now, and uh, we're rolling along. I said at the beginning of the program, I've got some tickets for the Tacoma Rainiers, mm-hmm. and that's going to be on July 25th. The game is at 12.05 p.m. So the number to call, if you would like to get these first these two tickets, and I want to stress that you get two tickets right behind home plate, you have access to what's called the Dugout Club and free beverages. Now, this would be a lunch, not a dinner, but uh, you have access to that, all complimentary, and free parking. So that's compliments of uh, Voices of Experience Radio. Love I it. I guess for uh, nothing better to say other than that. Well, it's the first caller, though, right? So you need to get ready to dial. That's right. And I'm going to give that number right now. Exactly, Eric. Just the first person to call. 425-653-1166. Just give us your name and also give us your phone number so we can contact you back and say you are the winner of these tickets. I'm going to give that uh, phone number out one more time. 425-653-1166. Voices of History for today. On July 18th, 1985, the Titanic was discovered by marine geologist Robert Ballard. The remains of the Titanic were found 350 miles southeast of Newfoundland, about 13,000 feet down on the ocean floor. Ballard had the help of the U.S. Navy, which supplied him with Argo, a high-resolution sonar device and submersible photographic sled. There you go. That was uh, in 1985. And that's not that long ago to think it took that long right. to find that right. vessel. I remember yeah. people telling me growing up, oh, they'll never find it. I go, what? at some point, I think they're going to find that vessel or something. But I, I give a radio talk down at a local college, and one of the things I do is I play the SOS uh, uh, message from the Titanic to the Carpathian, uh, Carpathia. And... Um, that's one of the first times it was used. There was actually a radio room on board a ship of that size. Right. And it saved lives. And it led to what we have now, VHS radios and every boats from little ski boats all the way up to ocean liners. Pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. At 7.56 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on July 20th, that would be tomorrow, 1969, Neil Armstrong spoke these words to more than a billion people watching or listening at home. That's one small step for a man, one giant leap forward for mankind. Armstrong became the first human 
to walk on the surface of the moon. And we know all this from history, but there were a couple other tidbits I kind of uncovered about that first moonwalk. First of all, they found out that moon dirt smells. Did you huh. know that? No, not at all. I didn't either. It smells like cheese, right? Yes. Since right, the moon Eric. is made of cheese. Right. <laughs> Parmesan. <laughs> who, who hired this guy? <laughs> I don't know, but he's the only one that knows how to run all that stuff over yeah, there. That's right. Let him go. We keep... Yeah, we'll have to keep. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I, I suppose you may have a point. But <laughs> we did find out that, um, oh, the question is, Neil Armstrong was the first man on the moon. Who was the second? Oh, boy. I should have done that for my question Eric, today. what do you got? Was yeah. it Buzz Aldrin? You got it. Bing. There we go. You got it. I wouldn't have got it, but uh, I got it. And Michael Collins stayed back in the capsule. That's right. Look at this. Very good. He's knocking him out of the park. Well, see, he just <laughs> he just rebounded <laughs> off to the cheese thing, and all of a sudden he knows this. So you're you're you can stay. That was good. Thank you. Um, but anyhow, yeah. So I guess what happened? The moon dirt clung to the spacesuits. Something to do with the air. Mm-hmm. They got back into the capsule. They took it off and went through some, you know, air and airing it out. And they smelled it and. Um, it smelled like wet fireplace ashes or the air, how it smelled up their fireworks show. Yes. There you go. Wow. That's that's crazy. I've never, I've never heard that. President Kennedy confessed in 1962 he wasn't really interested in space, going to the moon per se. He really was interested I, I, in doing that, but he did it because he wanted to win the Cold War against Russia. He wanted to beat Russia there. That was his main objective to go to the moon and uh let's see what other thing we may be aware of this but when the uh lunar module came in and you know from the moon and came and splashed into the ocean was picked up that was like three days later july 24th all three astronauts were put into a mobile quarantine facility they were transported to nasa laboratory at the johnson space center until August 10th, almost a month later, or rather, I guess three weeks or so, they just stayed in this facility because there was some concern that there may be some space germs mm-hmm. that they've taken back from mm-hmm. the moon. So that I, I think I had heard, but wow. uh, there you go. So, What an amazing thing to say that you're the first human on the moon. Yeah. Right, just... Yeah. And now, are there still people that believe we never went there? Is of course kind of there a thing are. Going There's on? morons everywhere. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yes, of course. I mean, they'll believe anything, a conspiracy. Okay. Let's put a kibosh to this now, all these, you know, theories that come about in this area. And if you can't really put these conspiracy theories to rest after this, there's no hope for you. All right. Let's say you're buying into that for Mm -hmm. just a moment. Mm -hmm. Now, think what you would have to do to do this cover-up. Okay? So you'd have to have... Obviously, the astronauts involved, all of Houston, all of the scientists and all of the people who were monitoring the moon. Yeah. You'd have to have a lot of hundreds of other people involved in this thing. People building the movie sets from Hollywood because that's what they said they did. Yes. Right. So you'd have to roughly 2000 people involved and not one person (laughs) would come up at one point and go, hey, I got to tell you something. Yeah. Before they passed away or something. One drunken night at the bar. Right. Do I have a story for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Shut up over there. You see what I mean, though? That's yeah. what I think about conspiracy theories. <laughs> Somebody said that to me once, and it changed my whole mind about, yeah, 
how many things you'd have to do. Now, oh, I can get rambling here. Yeah, we got to move the show you. along. But <laughs> I got you fired it, up. It's like, yeah, in the Manhattan Project, right? I'm going to go here in that point, and that's, you know, the Oppenheimer movie's coming out right now, which is, you know, going to be very interesting. But that was done in uh, Los Alamos, right? Yes. And that's where the, you know, the bomb was discovered. And I think they had, I can't say how many thousands of people there, but how did they pull it off? Because there were only two, maybe three people who knew what they were doing. Right. That was it. Everybody else involved with that, it was so segregated, the projects. Correct. And I read when I was down there, I went through a tour of Los Alamos, and there were some people who were told they were working on windshield wipers for submarines. Yes. So they fragmented everything out. So I kind of had that question at the time going, well, how did they keep the lid on this? You see? So that was kind of how they did it. Yeah. And I believe a lot of aerospace and high-tech companies do that now. You're in charge of this little widget, and that's it. Right. You don't even know what it goes to. You know, By the time it's all done, it's a state-of-the-art fighter jet. You You got it. That's right. So anyhow, there we go for Voices of History. A little bit more than you bargained for today, but what the heck. Love it. Uh, So we'll come back with uh, just in a moment with uh, my interview with Jack Cavanaugh. Jack, you uh, were born in Ireland, then came to the United States. What was your trajectory? Why did you do that? Well, work, really. I wanted to be a journalist, and I was working for a Dublin paper called the the Irish Press, a very long-established paper. But it was on its way down, and it uh, I, I had a feeling it was about to go out of business, and I was proved right a year later. So I came over in 1994 for the World Cup, um, I did a bit of sports reporting. I came over for the Soccer World Cup in America in 1994. And I looked around and I found a job in the Philadelphia region. And so when did you get into the tour business? Well, that came about because I've been working for National Geographic since 2001 in various guises. I've been an editor uh, for international editions. And then I worked for books. I, I was an editor of tour guides. The National Geographic has a wing called the National Geographic Expeditions, and they send various experts, as they're called, around with with the the groups who give lectures and introduce people to the culture and and the country. So they they came to me and they said, would you like to go to Ireland for a 10-day tour um, and stay in all these lovely hotels and and talk to people about Ireland, and I said, yes, and it's wonderful. It's a great, great way to see my homeland again, you know? Oh, of course. That's a nice luxury to have. Let's get into, let's say, people going to Ireland, and let's say someone has a week to go to Ireland. That's all they have. They want to see it for the first time. Where would you suggest they go? Well, I always say to, to people going to Ireland is don't overschedule it, because you'll you'll miss the real joy of Ireland, which is the people. The people are the, are the real treasure of Ireland. People love to talk in Ireland, and people are very open and interested about other people. They'll, they'll give you the time to talk. So if you're rushing around from one place to the other and seeing all these places, you miss out on you know what, what makes Ireland special, which is the people and its culture, and just just that warm feeling of you know being with people who are who have time to talk, and I, I really think that you shouldn't try and do too much. But if you have a week, maybe go to Dublin, maybe go to um, Galway, 
and pick one other place, maybe Kerry, but Kerry is kind of distant, so maybe somewhere like uh, Kilkenny. Kilkenny's a lovely medieval town. It's got fabulous um, nightlife. It's got a beautiful um, medieval museum, one of the best in the world now, in St. Mary's Church, and they operate the medieval mile walking tours where you see the whole of, of Kilkenny. Really lovely place to spend a couple of days, and it's all very local, so you can walk everywhere. But really, Paul, I'd say don't try and do too much. Just enjoy enjoy every day in Ireland, you know, and, and be relaxed about it. I couldn't agree more. Actually, I did go to Ireland in 1989. Uh, my ancestry goes back to Boyle, Roscommon, and we actually oh, were able to... Well. Oh, good. Good to hear. And, you know, we went there, we landed in Shannon, but we had a person who went to Ireland in advance and said what you said. We had a week, and he said, keep it yeah. close to the vest. And you are so right. We were able to see a lot of the Irish people, and it's everything you say, that they want to talk and mm-hmm. talk, and they're proud of their country, and you learn so much. Now, how about, let's say, you have a month to go. What would you suggest then? Well, obviously, go to all the big places like Dublin. Go to Kerry. Kerry's great if you have the time to explore it. It's a vast county in the southwest of Ireland on the Atlantic. Absolutely beautiful hills, really scenic places. Lovely town called Dingle. You can go and explore. It's a very rich cultural place. There's, there's a marvellous place called the Dishcart Centre of Spirituality in Dingle, which has, um, it's a real little hidden gem. It's got 12 stained glass windows by Harry Clark, a famous Irish artist. And you can walk in there and just make a little contribution to the convent. It's in a convent and see these glorious works of art. Right across the street, you've got what I call the, the 10 most musical uh, square feet in Ireland, which is the Dingle Record Shop. You can have a long chat about music because they know everything about music in there and they're happy to share it with you. I spent like hours in there researching this book. Um, You can go up to Clare, Doolan, tiny little village, four pubs, but it's the home of um, traditional Irish music and all those pubs will be hopping every night with a, a lovely music session. Go to Galway, explore Galway, which is... I call Galway the heart of Ireland because it's the Gaelic heart of Ireland. You know, they speak Irish uh, in in that region, the Gaeltacht region. Um, Galway is such a vibrant city for the arts. There's always a festival going on. There's the Galway races. There's the International Arts Festival. There's a Guinness and Oyster Festival in in September. Sorry, October and I think in April there's a poetry uh, festival. There's always something happening in Galway. Lovely place. And then if you have the time, go up to Donegal, which I kind of rediscovered doing this book. And it's a, it's a gem. It's a little bit distant, and it's harder to get to than the rest of the country because there's only one road going from the Republic. But it's well worth the time to get up there. I, I was describing to a friend of mine, and I said it's like the Louisiana of Ireland in that it, it kind of marches to its own drum, you know. Um, the music is a little bit different. The fabulous, rich culture of music singing up there. Um, and there's all kind of surprising things that you come across. Like I came across this place called Wild Ireland, which is a wildlife refuge. Um, and the man up there is this passionate lawyer, Killian McLaughlin. And he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to recreate the Celtic rainforest of thousands of years ago by reintroducing all these, these animals that have gone extinct, like the wolf, the bear, birds, etc. But magical day I had it at Wild Ireland. Oh, I could go on Belfast. You, there's so much to do. Ireland is, is really, really 
you know, it's it's a, it's a fascinating place because there's so much going on in such a small area that if you have a month, you're you're in for the best month of your life, you know. That's good to hear. I'm going to talk about your book in a moment, or I'll talk about it right now. Actually, Always Ireland. It's one of the finest publications I've seen pulled together ever. I mean, oh, thank you. the photographs, I think are over 300, are incredible. And just the history and the detail that you go into is absolutely wonderful. I just know so much more about it. I mean, you even get into Irish history, the insider history tips to kind of make you mm-hmm. feel you're learning something that you didn't know before. When people visit and go on your tours, what surprises them most about Ireland that they didn't know? A few things. They, they're, they're surprised how, how, how we like satire. Satire is big in Ireland and, and, and that sense of irony and kind of dark humour and that kind of comes about, I think, from history, and we go into this in the book, that um, it's a kind of subversive way of, of having a go at authority. Irish people are pretty irreverent, you know, when it comes to authority and government and all this kind of thing. Um, so we go into the history of that in, in, in the book, and I talk to, to my guests on the tour, and they're always kind of warm to this theme for some reason. They kind of like this Irish subversiveness of, of irreverence towards authority. It brings out the Irish in people, I think, you know. The other thing they're surprised with is how small the country is. You know, we're um, we're only like 5.4 million people. I, I I tell the story, Paul, that I was in D.C. a few years ago and I worked there and I was at a bus stop and I was reading a book by Colin Tobin, Irish novelist, and I felt this presence over my shoulder, a guy trying to see what the book was. So I fell into conversation with him and he was asking me all the right questions about Ireland. And then he said, how many people are there in Ireland, you know? And I said, uh, well, at the last count, I said there was 4.5 million at the last census. And he looked at me in amazement and he said, what? He said, for 4.5 million people, you guys make a hell of a racket, (laughs) you know? And that's true. Like, he was talking culturally about, you know, the the amount of uh, literature that's come out of Ireland and the the music and whatnot. But I I think that surprises people, you know, that it's such a, a tiny country, really. I didn't know that before I went as well, and I was surprised. I mean, it's... Now, that's not the population, about half of the state of Washington. So it is yeah, yeah. quite amazing that there's so little numbers of people. What do you think the biggest but the, myth... The other side of the equation, Paul, is that there's 20 million of us abroad, and we we do get into that in the book, you know, the Irish abroad and, and the stamp they've had on the world. So we go into the Irish in America, the Irish in Europe, etc. You know, Are there people moving there quite a bit now? There's been a huge uptick in uh, applications for passports, uh, partly because of Brexit, of course. Um, people wanted a European passport. And there's there's a whole lot of Irish people, of course, living in Britain for years. You know, uh, I have, I think, six, six people in my family, six cousins of mine are married to English people and living in Britain. So, you know, that causes all kinds of complications when they, when they want to go to France for their holidays or whatever they have to. But I think a lot of people are just saying, you know, Ireland is, is a, a great place now, and it's come a long, long way in terms of economics and that. A lot of people want to retire there. St. Patrick's Day. What is the biggest myth about that event? <laughs> There's lots of myths about it. But the one thing that, that mystifies me, I must say, is the green beer thing. You know, I, I, I can never understand that. I, I always compare it, I, I tease my American friends here, and I say, look, you know, do, do you dye your turkey red, white, and blue and eat it on Thanksgiving? Because that's what you're doing to the to the beer. You know, it's, we're just joking. But um, 
there's a lot in the book about St. Patrick and, and who he was. And I think one surprising thing that a lot of people don't realise is that St. Patrick was an immigrant. He wasn't Irish. He was he was a slave actually brought over from Britain, you know. Um, and I think that's uh, a very relevant thing to remember in this day and age. Anything else before we go, Jack? No, I just encourage everyone to go to Ireland once because, as I said, it's a, it's a great place for people. People love to talk in Ireland and, and you'll be very, very welcome there. So that's Jack Cavanaugh, and his book is called Always Ireland, and all you need to do is Google Always Ireland, and you will get to the page if you want to peruse the book. Uh, there's some reviews of it, or if you want to get it. Again, that's Jack Cavanaugh, Always Ireland. By the way, we do have those two tickets still available for the Tacoma Rainiers game on Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, at 12.05 p.m., I looked at the forecast. It's looking pretty good. And again, very briefly, the two tickets are behind home plate. And also, uh, you get access to uh, the lunch, all complimentary, beverages, parking, the whole shebang. Everybody who's gone to these games have really liked it. And Eric reminded me again to let you know how you can uh, get these tickets. And that would be to call the Voices of Experience hotline which is 425-653-1166. The first caller will get these two tickets for the game. And please leave your name and phone number so we can get back to you. One more time, 425-653-1166. Just want to give uh, little tips on self-employment, going into business for yourself. I have a quiz uh, in my book called Is Self-Employment for You? But if you're not in the market for a book on this, I also have this quiz on my website, which is voicesofexperience.com. And you can take it, and the higher you score on this quiz, my belief, after working in business for many years, developing these questions, you're higher prospects for success. There's nothing that you cannot do in this quiz that you can't improve upon either. Like, for example... Quickly, uh, I submit that it's really important to be extremely organized in running a business. Time is the most precious commodity. And someone instilled that on me very early. Thank you very much. But how you spend your time will really determine whether you will succeed and fail in many cases. And how should you spend your time? You're selling. No one can sell like you at the beginning of your business. You're out there. You're the spokesman. When somebody says to me, I don't like to sell, I say, then don't go into business for yourself. Eh, Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that because so many people think, oh, I'll just start hiring people. Right. (laughs) I try. Believe me. See, these came to me after I made these mistakes. Mm -hmm. You see, none none of them were obviously fatal. But certainly after a while, I tried two or three times to get people in because I didn't like to sell. And I realized... Somebody was telling me, my mentor, it's your deal. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, he did. So, <laughs> Dang <you> know, mentors. <laughs> I am now doing the same thing, so advising other people on that. But, again, you can take the quiz. Just go to voicesofexperience.com, and then you can click on and take the quiz, and you will get the instant response. It will send it back to you where your score is and where you need to improve upon. Okay, so, Eric, we got your interview coming up next, so let's get right to it. Sounds great.
And welcome to this edition of Spotlight on Success. Very excited to have via Zoom David Scheel. He's Ph.D. professor of marine biology there at the Alaska Pacific University. He teaches courses in marine biology, aquarium husbandry, and animal behavior. Specifically, though, we're going to talk about his book, Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses, and also just his work with octopuses and what is meant to him. So with that, I want to welcome David to the studios. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Prior to the uh, interview, I was speaking with our producer here, uh, Benny, and uh, we were talking about, we thought it was octopi. <laughs> so I'm going to leave with that question. Isn't it octopi? Uh, well, I like to say octopuses. Octo and pus are both from Greek roots, historically, although they are very similar words in Latin as well. So in sciences, we don't like to mix the classical languages, mm. but the plural ending I comes from the Latin. So we should stick with a more Greek plural ending. And in American English, that ends up being the ES, so octopuses. Love it. There you go. We were just, You just solved that. You owe me 10 bucks, Benny. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've studied octopuses for 25 years. What captivated you about them initially? You know, just a lot of things. Uh, you know, one of the funnest things that captivated me about them was how hard it was to tell where the science ended and mythology began mm. with the octopuses. And and that was kind of intriguing. Uh, almost everything with the octopuses was hard uh, and sometimes still is. But that was particularly intriguing. And, and uh, you know, I write about that in Many Things Under a Rock about octopus size and just how big do they get, you know? Mm -hmm. And so sort of the science got us up to, you know, roughly a hundred pounds, maybe a little more. And then there were less well-documented scientific records that went up from there. And those shaded into um, what were probably mistaken scientific records. And from there straight into mythology. And there was really no, no break. And that was kind of fun. Seems to me that some of those movies from those those B movies from the 60s and 70s, you know, with the giant octopus attacking a ship and taking down the ship and its crew uh, maybe did a big disservice for octopuses because it seems to me people have a bit of a fear of them. Yeah, they do. And I think that's very instinctive. I mean, it, I once introduced my niece to an octopus when she was a very small child. And, and you know, I was petting the octopus in the in the aquarium and her dad was petting, my brother was petting the octopus in the aquarium. And then we asked Alex, my niece, if she wanted to pet the octopus. And she would, she was just having none of it. <laughs> not at all. Not fascinated to watch us do it, but not the least bit interested in doing it herself. Well, as you look across the spectrum of animals, it's a very unique looking animal. Yeah. And, you know, I think primates in general don't really care for, for snakes. Mm -hmm. And um, so we come from that evolutionary background and the octopus is not a snake. They're very, very different animals. But visually, uh, there is something reminiscent uh, in the motion of the arms and the motion of a snake. And so, you know, I, and, and then there's that whole, we don't really have much experience with suckers. What What's that part of the animal going to do? Right. And, you know, I, I recount this moment also in, in many things under a rock of of seeing a part of an octopus emerge up over, over a little ridge of rock and not really being able to estimate just how big it is. As each additional part comes into view, the animal looks bigger and it looks like it could continue to get bigger indefinitely. Uh, and then finally the eyes come into view and you're like, oh, it's that big. Okay, now I can see it. <laughs> exactly. 
Well, you know, in my own personal experience over the years fishing out in the Puget Sound here, uh, I've on ac- by accident either reeled up or trapped in, say, a shrimp trap, an octopus. The first time I reeled up a Pacific giant Pacific octopus, which was amazing to see. It was huge. Uh, and it, it had attached itself to our downrigger, and we just slowly lowered it, let it go. Uh, the one that was in the uh, shrimp cage was much, much smaller. So I guess my question to you is, uh, was that perhaps a baby Pacific octopus, or are there just so many varieties? There are a number of varieties. In, in Puget Sound, I think two really common varieties are the giant Pacific octopus and another species called the red octopus, and that's octopus rubescence. And it is much smaller. It gets to about a pound, Mm -hmm. whereas the giant Pacific octopus, as I mentioned, can get at least to 100 pounds and probably more. But you're you're right. All the octopuses start out as as babies. Uh, Their eggs are, you know, little bigger than a grain of rice, maybe a fat grain of rice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you start out that small, you're obviously going through all the sizes in between that and your adult size. Um, And that's uh, another thing that I struggled with when I first started studying octopuses is how to tell the species apart. And it's a fascinating thing. It is easy to do, but it requires, you know, looking at them uh, and looking at a number of them and asking that question of what species is this? Um, And there's at least two other species and probably more in the area uh, in Puget Sound that can potentially come up in a pot. But but I imagine that was a juvenile giant Pacific octopus. And if not, it was probably uh, this octopus rubescence, the red octopus. Mm-hmm. It was definitely red in color. Uh, that's that's just so interesting. You know, I had the pleasure of seeing that uh, movie, My Octopus Teacher, about a year and a half ago. Somebody had recommended it to me. And ever since, I'm just so amazed at what seems to be their intelligence, uh, certainly their ability to adapt, and just being a fascinating animal to learn more about. Um, did you have any involvement in that movie or did you have the same reaction? Yeah, I did. They're, they're fascinating to, um, to interact with. I was privileged to partake in a, uh, PBS, um, and BBC nature special octopuses, octopus making contact. Mm. And, uh, it came out just before that other film you mentioned. Okay. Um, um, and, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's, it actually relates the story of, um, setting up an aquarium in my house and and bringing an uh, octopus, a day octopus, octopus cyanea in. And so um, the octopus's name was Heidi. Hmm. And uh, we shared the space in my living room for, for a while. And, you know, it's just amazing to have that kind of interaction in the house. Heidi liked to, uh, when I wasn't, I, I set up my desk where the desk and the aquarium were in sight of one another. And Heidi liked to come over when I wasn't paying attention and just move up and down the glass on the aquarium in the space closest to my desk wow. until I would look up. <laughs> and, and then, you know, she she would then move off like, you know, follow me kind of thing. And she wanted me to come and play with her. And if I didn't, if I looked back down and went back to work pretty soon out of the corner of my eyes again, I'd see her pacing up and down on the nearest corner of the tank trying to get my attention to bring me over to, wow. um, you know, play tug of war or give her some food or put a toy in her tank or whatever we could do. That's amazing. Uh, you've written a book, Many Things Under a Rock, The Mysteries of Octopuses. This is a book I definitely want to get. Uh, tell me about it. Tell me what what I'm going to find inside. Uh, well, you know, I tried to write it as a as a great 
sea adventure. So it's got it's got salty tales in it, and and you know mariners' yarns, and uh, and a lot of science to try and explain what we know about octopuses, how they function as animals, how they're similar to us, how they're different. Um, it looks at everything from how they find homes to how you recognize species to how they sense and engage with the world. Um, and including the kinds of relationships they can have. And it attempts to get at uh, an understanding of why this animal that we have so long regarded as a very solitary animal is nevertheless, you know, frankly, kind of companionable. And that, I think that's something that we haven't given them much credit for over the over the time that we've been talking about octopuses. I've done a little bit of research following what you've sent me uh, and learned that indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest up into Alaska actually had octopus as part of their diet. Not not a primary part, but certainly part of it. Can you speak to that and also just sort of worldwide um, the consumption of octopus and what it's done to maybe their populations? Yeah, I mean, octopuses and, and their relatives, the squids, uh, cuttlefish, in general are important food sources in, in a lot of different parts of the world. And I got into octopus studies following the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Prince William Sound, Alaska. And the oil uh, sort of coated the shorelines around, you know, along a, a thousand miles of Alaska coastline. And that greatly impacted the coastal communities that draw their living from the sea. But up in Alaska, a lot of those coastal uh, communities are Alaska native communities. Mm -hmm. And they have a very long traditions of harvesting octopuses from the intertidal. And it's an important food source because most of the food in the intertidal, if you get a clam or a, a badarki or something like that from from the ocean, you're going to get you're going to get a couple of bitefuls of food. But an octopus is several pounds, so it's a very important food source. And um, in uh, British Columbia, I believe there's a tradition there amongst the um, First Nations people of building little enclosures with low rock, just mm -hmm. kind of cultivating the intertidal landscape a little bit and then in the center of that enclosure building a little home for the octopuses that's easy to get into and then the octopuses occupy that home the enclosure concentrates their food a little bit and they they thrive there and then um the first nations can can harvest an octopus from there occasionally oh, yeah. so there, there is a really long cultural tradition of um octopuses as food well, David, unfortunately, we're out of time here. I want to repeat the name of your book because I think that's a wonderful place for people to start if they want to learn more about octopuses and their their habits and and what they what their intelligence means to the animal world and what they can do. It's many things under a rock: the mysteries of octopuses by David Scheel. David Scheel is a professor of marine biology in Alaska. David, any final words that you'd like to talk to our audience about uh, to let them know about octopuses and their role in our world? You know, the title is drawn from an Aboriginal word uh, in EAC, the language EAC, but it also stands in for the many things that are connected to octopuses. And I hope the readers will enjoy that book and find a lot of interesting things that octopuses touch and explore in it. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck on uh, your sales of the books. I think more people that learn about octopuses are just going to be just as, as fascinated as I am, and I'm sure you are, of course. Uh, thanks again for your time, and we will talk again to our audience here on Spotlight on Success real soon. We'll talk with you actually next week. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. It goes so quickly. I have such a good time doing this radio show with 
Boat Eric's yeah. here. Thank you very much. Good news for Joe. Joe, you won the Rainier tickets. Bum, 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 bum. We need some sort of a celebratory music. You know? so, dun, yeah, dun, you're dun. right. Or something <laughs> we'll like figure that. Something you're out. right. Some baseball music. There you go. Good idea. So I'm going to call you, Joe, and we will get that arranged, uh, get the tickets to you. So anyhow, let's see. Uh, let's go just right to the quote of the week. How's that? Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. I love it. Will Farrell. So have a great rest of the week, and uh, this week's Timeless Classic is coming up next. This week's Timeless Classic tells the story of an evangelical preacher who travels from town to town preaching. In the middle of the song, the singer gives a sermon in a typical evangelical style. Music Industry Reviews describes the single as a powerful piece of rhythm material with potent lyrics and revivalist sounds. Another called it a Memphis beauty. And Rolling Stone magazine said the song is genuinely demented. Don't know what they meant by that. Released in January of 1969, Brother Love's Travel and Salvation Show by Neil Diamond. expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of KKNW, its management, or other advertisers. Contests are the responsibility of the hosts of this program and not KKNW. This is 1150 AM KKNW Seattle and KPNW 98.9 FM HD3 Seattle. Good afternoon. It's Eric Ryder here with you on KKNW. We are approaching 4 o'clock and We've got a quick look at our afternoon commute. Southbound I-5 from Northeast 125th on down to Denny is slow. Finding heavy traffic at Interurban down to about South 188th. 
Northbound I-5 from Swift Avenue on up to about the 520 interchange is slow. Finding congestion approaching Shoreline, more in Linwood, and then from 526 on up past US-2 in the Everett area. 405 southbound slowing from Kirkland through Newcastle and northbound 405. Going to find some slowing uh, just approaching Woodenville. Now, both Lake Washington bridges westbound slowing across Lake Washington. Stay tuned. 